0: Back uh, back in the early years of the the 20th century, uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, yes, uh, Princeton, the Ivy League school, uh, believe it or not, uh, that seminary uh, was the most uh, prestigious conservative seminary uh, in America. And at that uh, same time, in the, the early part of the 20th century, there was a, a controversy growing, and it became known uh, as uh, the fundamentalist uh, modernist controversy. Uh, and the, the controversy surrounded uh, the developing position of uh, the modernists who were beginning to to deny several key doctrines of the Bible uh, and say that they were still a part of the Christian faith and, and saying that they were still within the balance of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, And uh, the modernists uh, believed that Christianity and the church needed to adapt to to be more acceptable to the culture. So as they were, they're looking at the world around them and they're saying, you know what, Uh, people at that point in time uh, are are not going to accept that the Bible is the word of God. They're, They're not going to accept that Scripture is uh, inspired and, and inerrant, and, and they won't accept that, uh, that Jesus was, was born of a virgin. Uh, and, and, you know, they, it's really going to be hard for them to believe that, that Jesus is really God and man and that he performed miracles and that he rose from the dead. So those are going to be stumbling blocks to people and and if we keep saying and teaching those things we're going to push people away so so we need to to change what we believe we need to to reevaluate some of those doctrines and kind of leave them by the wayside and on May 21st 1922 there was a very famous pastor named Harry Emerson Fosdick who was the, the pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Manhattan's West Village and he defended this modernist position and uh, and he he preached a very, very famous sermon. It was entitled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And in that sermon, he, he presented uh, the Bible as just being a record of God's unfolding will, but not as coming from God, not as being breathed out by God, not as being divinely inspired. And in that same sermon he talked about that the purpose of Christianity was to to foster growth and, and bring progress throughout history uh, and uh, th- that sermon went viral even before the internet. Uh, it, it was uh, rebroadcast uh, on the radio and the, the text of the sermon w- was was mailed uh, to, to pastors across the country and I guess flashback back to, to Princeton Theological Seminary, there, there's a growing controversy at that very conservative school. Uh, and uh, some of the faculty uh, are beginning to divide over this controversy. And there was a young New Testament professor there at Princeton whose name was J. Gresham Machen. And and he was beginning to get stirred up by the way that the, the modernist theologians were using all of the same biblical words and biblical terms, but they were redefining what those words meant, uh, or they were stretching the meaning uh, of the terms to mean something else. And, and so Machen saw that we, this needs to be addressed and we need to have clarity because there was confusion on which kind of branch of Christianity should I embrace? Should I embrace this uh, fundamental Christianity that that sticks to the Bible, or should I embrace what became known as kind of a a liberal theology that had a greater freedom uh, with Scripture and and other things? Uh, And so in 1923, just uh, about a a year after uh, Fosdick's sermon went uh, viral, uh, J. Gresham Machen wrote a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism. And, and in that book, Machen argued in a very clear and powerful way, and, and the, the whole point of the book w- was saying that this branch of liberalism, he said, this is not a branch of Christianity. This is a completely different religion. That was the main emphasis here. He says, let's let's speak clearly and candidly. These are not two branches of Christianity. These are two fundamentally opposed faiths. And in that book, he, he wrote this. The plain fact is that liberalism, whether it be true or false, is no mere heresy. It is no mere divergence at isolated points from Christian teaching. On the contrary, it proceeds from... From a totally different root, and it constitutes in essentials a unitary system of its own. What he's saying is, yeah, if you if you deny uh, the inspiration of Scripture, if you if you deny uh, that Jesus is born of a virgin and He is the God-Man and He performed miracles and that He died on the cross and rose from the dead, if you deny all of those things, you come up with a completely different faith. There's no common ground there. So Machen wrote that book in 1923, but but over time it became clear that the leadership of Princeton Theological Seminary was going to continue in its direction towards uh, the, the modernist. It was going to continue to embrace uh, a theology that was completely contrary to Scripture. And so Machen did something very bold. He, he led a group of six... Princeton Theological Seminary professors and they left Princeton and they formed a new seminary which became known as Westminster Theological Seminary there in the Philadelphia area. And it was a, a risky endeavor, right? They, they left their, their pay, their, their pensions, they left their prestige of teaching at Princeton, right, uh, to go and start a new seminary. And they were, they were so convinced that they needed to be have a seminary that was going to teach and proclaim god 's word, all of those men were convinced that the, again that liberalism was a a fundamentally different religion. They were all convinced of the warning of the apostle Paul in Colossians chapter two, verse eight and I would invite you to to turn there with me this is such a fundamental concept and such an important verse there are there are some verses in scripture that have truth. Every verse of Scripture has truth, but sometimes there, there are certain verses in Scripture that have a very narrow application to our lives. And there are other verses and passages in Scripture that are so broad and so far-reaching, uh, and we, we come to them over and over again. And Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, is one of those passages that we could camp out on for months. Uh, It is so rich and and so deep. And there's so much that it challenges us to and how uh, it applies to our lives. And the Apostle Paul says this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. All of those men were convinced that the, the theology that was coming at them in this fundamentalist modernist controversy, that it was a philosophy, it was a, an ideology, a worldview that was not founded upon Scripture. It was not according to Christ. It was according to the, the wisdom of men. The, the tradition of men, and so they said it has no place among us and I, I bring all of that up to to show us that there is nothing new under the sun, that that history repeats itself over and over again that there is the, the, the one true faith and there are uh, constantly uh, re- reproductions of of attempted copies of the faith of slight changes to it. Uh, And those are always trying to make inroads into the church. And it's been happening for centuries. There's so many other examples I could have looked at, but I bring this one up to say that there is another worldview, another philosophy, an ideology that has come onto the scene today. Uh, And it's Uh, known as the the social justice movement and and the emphasis of it's it's been seen as a movement and as something that's very narrow in its scope. Uh, But what I want to argue and I'm going to try and convince you of today that it is much more than something that is narrowly minded and just focused on one aspect of the the world or our lives. It is an entire way of viewing and understanding and interpreting the world around us. It is its own religion Uh, it's a way of viewing and understanding the world what's wrong with the world it proposes uh, a a means of salvation it has a solution to the world's problems it it lays out where the world uh, is going if we don't address this problem and so many other things Uh, and this worldview has been embraced by our contemporary culture Uh, and uh it's amazing at the, the, the rate at which it has been embraced. Uh, and it's, it is especially prominent in, in large metropolitan areas, and that's, I think, s- to a certain extent we haven't uh, felt it as much here where, where we are. But uh, it is uh, the, the prominent worldview in, in most cities in our nation. And it's also made inroads into some very strategic places in our culture. Right, Colleges and, and universities, that's where it, it incubated uh, for years and years. And, and because it's been taught in colleges and universities for years and years, uh, it, it's now trickling down into uh, high school and even middle school, uh, and even below that into uh, elementary schools, which we'll talk about in the future. But it's also been adopted and, and taught, proclaimed by our mainstream media and entertainment. Uh, by the, the progressive wing of the, the Democratic Party, by big tech companies in Silicon Valley, by the boardrooms of major corporations, by professional credentialing and accrediting organizations, uh, th- those who uh, credential teachers and doctors and lawyers. They are embracing this worldview. By professional sports leagues. Uh, they're seeing trying to outdo one another in how much they can proclaim this. And then also the, the mainstream protestant denominations those who accepted that the liberal theology in the early 20th century they're also embracing this theology this new worldview so that it's being embraced by the world but it's also creeping into some churches and then leaping into others several pastors of, of large churches have have stood up and and confessed their complicity in Racism uh, and white privilege, and they're not pointing to specific things that they've done. They're just saying, well, uh, under this new worldview, that they are guilty uh, of these things. And in in 2019, that the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest convention, it's the largest uh, denomination in America, close to to 20 million Southern Baptists. They passed a resolution stating that critical race theory and intersectionality, and we'll, we'll talk about those things. Those are the main philosophical tenets of this social justice movement. Uh, the, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution saying, hey, we can use these, uh, these philosophical systems as tools of interpretation uh, to make sense of uh, the world around us. And, and this created uh, a great conflict within the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and it's, it's starting to, to fracture Uh, the largest denomination uh, in America. And it's also uh, that same conflict is being experienced in other denominations uh, and and in many churches uh, who are divided of what what do we do with this? What do we do when there are, are some pastors who are standing up and embracing this and other pastors and churches who are saying we should avoid this like the plague? What do we do? How do we make sense of these things? How are we to make sense of this philosophy as it surrounds us in the culture and seeks to make inroads into the church. Well, you know, I would, I would echo Jay Gresham Machen of it. It has no place in the church. Uh, and, and you wouldn't probably argue with me if I said, hey, I'm going to try and synchronize, I'm going to try and mix Islam and Christianity. If I said that, you, you would all be up in arms. Like, wait, those are two different religions, the two different worldviews. You can't mix the two. They're incompatible. And, and my argument this morning is the same thing is going to be true with, with the social justice movement. There is no mixing. There is no syncretism. You know, and also understand that that was, the, that was one of the, the greatest sins of Israel in the Old Testament. What they wanted to say is that we can worship the one true God and the gods of the world around us. I just think to Exodus chapter 32 and the, and the golden calf. Moses has gone for 40 days, and the, the people of Israel come to, to Aaron and say, "'Hey, I don't know where Moses went, but can you, can you help us to worship God?' And what did Aaron do? He says, "'Okay, we'll just worship God. We'll kind of mix in some other ideas.'" And so he said, "'Okay, give me all of your earrings. We'll, we'll melt them down, and we'll, we'll make a calf, a golden calf, and we'll bow down and we'll worship it.'" And he says, "'Look, O Israel, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt.'" They didn't completely cast aside the God who saved them. They, they syncretized. They, they mixed. They tried to merge two different religions, but that doesn't work. To mix the ideology of social justice with biblical Christianity is to try and mix oil uh, and water. Have you ever tried that? Uh, you homeschool families, you, you put a little container and you, you mix it up, right? Uh, and for a time... It looks like it's going to be okay. It's going to mix together. Where all of the oil has broken up into to pieces and it's just really small. But as you let it sit, what happens? It separates out. And that's what needs to happen with biblical Christianity and this movement of social justice. But I also, I also want to be clear. When I, when I speak of social justice, I'm speaking about an ideology. I am not saying that the church should not be concerned about matters of justice and injustice. Okay? Uh, I'm not saying that at all. Over and over again in Scripture, what is it we're to be concerned about? Justice. What is right? We're to be concerned about the mistreatment of anyone. We're to be concerned when sin and injustice are taking place in our nation and in our land. But that is different than embracing this larger theological worldview of the social justice movement. I love the way one, uh, one, one theologian uh, has, has put it. He's, we're just regarding Black Lives Matter. He says, as a sentence, we must wholeheartedly embrace it. So yes, 100% Black Lives Matter. But as a movement for what it is about... We have to reject it because what it is about in terms of uh, the things that are being proposed there uh, is counterproductive to Christianity. And so uh, as I'm going to be talking and looking at this today, this ideology, uh, also understand I'm not attacking people and we must never attack people. What we're trying to address are our thoughts and ideas. Every thought and idea that's raised up against the knowledge of God. And as ambassadors of Christ, we're commanded to love people. To speak the truth in love. To represent Christ well. But we also have to speak truth and refute error. Again, we do not attack people because our battle is not with people. Okay? Our battle is with ideas. You're, you're there with me in Colossians. If you turn back to the left just a little bit to Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We have to, to understand what we're addressing and who we are addressing. Okay? We love people, but we patiently address the ideas that are taking people captive. We looked at Colossians 2, verse 8. We read that already. And again, we have to see that there is a danger with some ideas. That's the warning of the Apostle Paul. See to it that no one takes you captive, that no one takes you prisoner, that no one enslaves you by these ideas that have their roots in man, that have their roots in human tradition. These ideas can take you captive, they can enslave, and they can ruin, just like a simple idea that Satan put forth to Eve in the garden. Cast all of... The world into sin and to live under the curse think about that one little idea in the garden has god really said that Ah, i don't think so god's holding out on you you should eat that fruit because when you eat that fruit you'll be just like god you'll know good and evil one little idea far-reaching consequences and said all all ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. And and that's what we need to see and understand. Also, if you turn over with me to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You look with me beginning in verse 4. Paul tells us how we go about battling these ideas. It says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is what we are called to do, that every idea, every concept that comes our way, we have to take it and say, Jesus, what should I say about this idea? You're coming with me. We're going to go talk to my Savior I'm going to take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we have to do. We have to remember that, again, our battle is against ideas rather than people. And that's why I, I began this, this series on the, the social justice revolution by, by addressing the rules of engagement. How do we go about reasoning and talking with people? Right? And, I, and I gave you four rules of engagement. And number one, we have to listen. We must listen with the goal of understanding. Well, we have to hear people out, not just to, to respond and give our own arguments, but we need to have compassion and genuinely hear the concerns of others. That has to be our goal. But then secondly, we must judge according to God's Word. We must hear people out and and sympathize and and understand where they're coming from. But then we judge everything according to Scripture. And everything that's brought to our attention as we evaluate it. The third rule of engagement is that we must confess every sin to be sinful. No matter who's committed it, no matter where it was committed or when it was committed, we have to agree with God about what is sin and what is not. And then we must also lament every injustice and tragedy. That should break our hearts. And we need to weep with those who weep. We are called to do. That was the rules of engagement. And we have to keep those in mind uh, throughout this whole uh, conversation with others. And because we must judge everything according to God's word, the second message in the series that I taught two weeks ago was on the concept of, of biblical justice. What does the Bible have to say about justice? The Bible is not silent on this topic. What does it have to say? What do we need to learn? And that's what we looked at two weeks ago. And today I want to, to begin to kind of examine and, and dissect the, the social justice movement that surrounds us. And Because part of my responsibility as an elder is to to teach sound doctrine, uh, but also to to warn and to rebuke about false doctrine. Titus one nine says that that's the qualification of an elder. He's able to teach and uh, to discern what is false. And again, the, the 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 importance of discernment is not just to say what's right and what's wrong. It's it's being able to say what's right and what's almost right. Because again, being off one or two degrees, uh, it's it's really hard to tell early on but as time progresses if you're off one or two degrees you end up in a completely different place that's what i'm i'm seeking to to do now and and uh, this morning i want to kind of answer the question of why should the the church reject the social justice movement uh and uh, initially in my my writing and my studying this week i was like oh i'm gonna do four reasons uh and as i uh was uh diving into it we're going to get to one (laughs) so uh, there'll be uh, additional parts to this but the 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 big point I want to look at this morning of of reason number one why we should uh, reject this as a as a movement again we're not rejecting justice but we're rejecting this overall worldview because it it deceives by redefining words okay it deceives by redefining words Uh, There's a a book that was recently published. Uh, It's called Cynical Theories. Uh, It's a a book written by two non-Christian authors, uh, and uh, their names are James Lindsay and and Helen Pluckrose. These academics write about the the use of language in the social justice movement. They say this, Within the the English-speaking world, uh, they speak English, But they use everyday words differently from the rest of us. And they give this example. When they speak of racism, for example, they are not referring to prejudice on the grounds of race, but rather to, as they define it, a racialized system that permeates all interactions in society and yet is largely invisible except to those who experience it or who have been trained in the proper critical methods that train them to see it. So basically, they've redefined racism. So it's not an isolated act in terms of uh, prejudice against somebody based upon uh, their skin. But they've redefined it to be this whole system of racism and oppression. Uh, And so in defining it that way, only certain people can be guilty of racism. Uh, and others, even though they may do exactly the same things, can never be guilty of it. And so we begin to see uh, this partiality that begins to form. And, and racism has been completely redefined, and it's been redefined in a in a subtle and an accusatory way, and in a way that that gives power to the social justice movement. Another uh, academic author and, and commentator. Christopher Caldwell said this in a recent article in the National Review. He says, The word racist is a powerful disciplinary tool that whoever controls its deployment can bend others to his will. And in the recent wave of cancellations, silencings, forced recantations, and self-denunciations, it has become clear that corporations fear the word racism so much that they will betray their employees and permit their lives to be destroyed rather than risk being accused of it. So that this concept of, of racism has been redefined and and weaponized. That if you uh, if you call someone that, it, it's the, in essence it's an assassination of their their character and their reputation. Racism has been been redefined and and weaponized, and so has the very concept of of justice. This is. So key because justice is not a new concept, it's been around for a long, long time and it's been clearly understood for a long, long time, but it's been redefined in our contemporary culture. What, what's an interesting uh, thing to do? You can go online if you search for Webster's Dictionary 1828, uh, it'll take you. Uh, to the 1828 version of the dictionary. And it's amazing uh, how, to see how language has changed between now and then. Uh, and listen to uh, this entry for justice of, of what was understood to be justice in 1828. And again, this my argument is this is how justice has always been understood and should still be understood today. Just, the entry for justice says this, The virtue which consists in giving to everyone what is his due. Practical conformity to the laws and to principles of rectitude in the dealings of men with each other. Honesty, integrity in commerce or mutual intercourse. And that says justice is uh, distributive or commutative. And commutative just means that there's an interchange or exchange. So distributive justice, it says, belongs to magistrates or rulers and consists in distributing to every man that right or equity which the laws and the principles of equity require, or in deciding controversies according to the laws and to principles of equity. And commutative justice consists in fair dealing in trade and mutual intercourse between man and man. Uh, And if you remember, that definition from the the dictionary from 1828 is virtually identical to what I laid out two weeks ago. This is the biblical concept of justice. There's neighborly justice, the idea of how we interact with one another. We are called to live justly and righteously and to interact with one another in a way that honors God and man. Uh, And then there was distributive justice or authoritative justice, and that's the justice that is handed down by those in authority. Parents, you are uh, a distributive judge to your children. Bosses, in the same way, to employees. Governing authorities uh, in the state uh, distribute justice to citizens. That is how justice has always been understood. But now it's being redefined. So how has the social justice movement redefined justice? Well... Uh, it's no longer about living rightly with your neighbor or handing out impartial judgment, but uh, it's it's this, and this is uh, from uh, a website, uh, Investopedia, which there was a, a ton of different uh, places and, and definitions of it, but but this one was was profound. Again, secular uh, news source says this, historically and in theory, the idea of social justice is that all people should have equal access to wealth, health, well-being, justice, privileges, and opportunity, regardless of their legal, political, economic, and other circumstances. In modern practice, social justice revolves around favoring or punishing different groups of the population regardless of any given individual's choices or actions based upon value judgments regarding historical events, current conditions, and group relations. In economic terms, this often means redistribution of wealth, income, and economic opportunities from groups whom social justice advocates consider to be oppressors to those uh, whom they consider to be oppressed. Social justice is often associated with identity politics, socialism, and revolutionary communism. Definition from a a secular source. But here's a more succinct uh, definition for you since you probably didn't copy all of that down. A resource I would recommend to you if you're kind of working through these things is a, a book by Scott David Allen called Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. And he defines justice in the social justice movement in this way. That justice consists of the tearing down of traditional structures and systems deemed to be oppressive and the redistribution of power and resources from oppressors to victims in pursuit of equality of outcome. And let's let's talk about what that that means. Uh, And so in this new definition of justice, justice is not about equal opportunity. It's not making sure everybody uh, is... Uh, getting the same opportunities uh, for housing and education and and jobs. It's not about that. Uh, It's not about equal opportunity. It's about equal outcome. We want the same thing for everyone, uh, regardless of any type of uh, effort that's put in, regardless of uh, skill, ability, anything. They want everybody to be exactly the same. And that's uh, the difference in in the terms of... equity versus equality. Okay. Uh, they want no disparities. Uh, and so, uh, the difference between equality and equity, uh, found another great, uh, illustration of this on another, uh, social justice website. Uh, and they say this the, describing the difference between equity and equality. It says equity takes into account the effects of discrimination and aims for an equal outcome. And there's a, uh, they, they point to this illustration, that if if we were, uh, there were three people standing and trying to look over a fence, okay? Uh, and the three people are, are very different heights. Uh, and they said, well, the tallest person uh, is the person with privilege. Uh, and they don't need any help looking over the fence. Uh, and then there's the, the person in the middle who is shorter uh, and can't see over the fence. And then there's an even shorter person Uh, and uh, they are not able to to see either. Uh, And so what equality pushes for uh, is giving everybody help. And they say this, so equality would look like this, of giving all three of those people a box to stand on to try and get them to be able to see over the fence. Right. But they say, if you give everybody just one box, the person who didn't need the box is standing even taller. And the person in, in the middle who needed the box is now able to see uh, over uh, the fence. But the person over here uh, is still too short to be able to see over the fence, even if they have one box. So that's what they say. They look at that and they say, look, equality doesn't work. So what we need to pursue is equity. So that what their solution is, what we need to do uh, is look and judge each person differently and say, oh, since this person over here uh, is the, the, the least privileged and therefore also the, the most oppressed, and we'll talk about oppression and, and oppressed uh, in coming weeks, but they say, L- we need to give this person two boxes to stand on. That way they come up to the same level uh, and the person in the middle, we give them one box and then the person uh, who has the most privilege, they don't need the box, they don't get anything. Uh, and so that that's what equity is. If we do as anything and everything that we can to try and make everybody arrive at the exact same station. But the reality of trying to to get people to be, uh, have the exact equal outcome is nearly impossible. And there's a, another book that I've been uh, listening to by an economist named Thomas Sowell uh, called the, the Quest for Cosmic Justice. And, and Thomas Sowell, I would in- encourage you to read everything that, that he has uh, written. He's a, a brilliant economist. Uh, and, and he wrote this book in 1999. And it's extremely prophetic because it sounds like it could have been written in the last five months. Uh, but he wrote it 20 years ago, and he's a, he's a professor uh, at Stanford. Uh, and so he's been interacting with these ideas for years. And he's back in you know, 20 years ago saying, this is not going to work. And in the book, he points to this, just the impossibility of the equality of equal outcome. And he points to a family. And he says, look at all of the, the, the siblings in a family. Right They are in identical home situations, right uh, there is no greater uh, op- like e- equality of opportunity and equity there, and yet, how much disparity is there among siblings in terms of intelligence in terms of artistic or athletic ability uh, parents when you, you look at your kids, all of your kids are different, and you could give your kids uh you know different activities and they're not all going to come out with exactly the same thing so What what Thomas Sowell says is he points to this and says, this is impossible. And he's not a believer, but he says this. He says, this is just intellectual pride to think that we can bring equal outcomes across all of society when we can't even do that in a single family. That it's impossible to eliminate disparities and to bring about complete equity and equal outcome all of these things but here's also what is is taking place uh in uh the social justice movement and, I, and that, if we go back to that illustration of giving out boxes right uh for people to stand on but uh what if rather than giving out boxes what if we just started digging what, what if we to make everybody equal you can either raise everybody up or what can you do you, you can lower others uh, and it has the same net effect. And what is taking place uh, in all of this is uh, the, the social justice movement. It, they will, they're pursuing equity, equal outcomes, any way that they can get it, either by lifting some up or tearing others down or a combination of both. They just want uh, equal outcome. That is the, the very goal of this social justice movement. Again, they've redefined justice. Uh, and and so, where does all of this go wrong? I, 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 the the Bible uh, and and some of this is all so confusing because again, they're they're using biblical concepts and biblical ideas and and things some of the things that we we need to give amen to and we need to say that, that that's a good thing. Are we supposed to to care for the poor? Absolutely. Are we supposed to have compassion upon the less fortunate? Absolutely. If we do have much, much is required of us. We're going to have to give an account, and we don't use our, our resources and our talents and our, our treasures for ourselves. We're to use them uh, to love God and love others. So in that sense, it's, it's 100% right that we need to be concerned on some of these things. But the solution that they propose... It is actually a complete opposite of the concept of justice because what they are uh, proposing is a system of justice that is uh, partial in nature that that shows favoritism that doesn 't have uh, equal treatment for everybody uh, but unequal treatment for everybody uh, and uh, in the pursuit of uh, pursuing uh, Equal outcomes, they become the judge of how to accomplish all of those things. But if you turn with me over to uh, the, the book of Jude, before Revelation, Jude's going to shed some light on what partiality and, and favoritism does, and 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 what Scripture is going to reveal here is that impartial judgment, that's true justice. Where everybody is equal under the law. You don't judge based upon favoritism, uh, but you judge this is what the law is, and we don't make a a prejudicial judgment based upon uh, someone's economic status or uh, their uh, sex or uh, their ethnicity, anything else. We judge based upon truth. But Here in in Jude, Jude is going to condemn favoritism. Look at what he says. Begin with me in verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lamb comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and of, of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Uh, and so, speaking of those who do not know Christ and who are behaving in this ungodly way, he says this. Sorry, I lost my place. They have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouthed boasters and then showing favoritism to what? To gain advantage. Uh, And that's what we also need to see, that this social justice movement, it is a political movement. Uh, It is seeking political power. They're not really concerned about the things that they're saying they're concerned about. They are seeking to gain advantage. Favoritism and partiality are the tools of the unrighteous towards those means. And many, many churches have been kind of duped into this social justice movement because they've co-opted and redefined biblical concepts. Again, are we supposed to care about justice? Absolutely. And, and so how can we argue against that, right? I, I referred uh, last week to, to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. because says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? We're told to, to do justice. Right? That's a clear command in Scripture. So, are we supposed to, to support any movement that comes along and says, We're for justice? No. Talked about that a couple weeks ago, right? What do we do when there's two different competing ideas of what justice is? I, I pointed to, to Adolf Hitler, who in the 1930s seized power in Germany on a platform of what? Social justice. We're going to make things right. We're suffering. We're being oppressed. We're going to address these things. But we have to evaluate everything according to Scripture. And when we do that, we see that this, this movement is actually perverting true justice. Because in social justice, they're requiring judgment based with partiality and favoritism. It's a foundational tenet. But biblical justice is judging without partiality. It's impartial judgment that you don't show anyone any favoritism uh, before the law. If a person is under social justice, if a person fits our definition of privilege, we judge them one way. And if they don't fit our definition of privilege, we judge them another way. But then who determines who's privileged and who's not? And true justice is impartial. And what they are proposing is the the very definition of injustice. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20 say this, and and again, God cares so much about justice. As God is instructing Israel before they go into the land, he says this. says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous justice and only justice. You shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord, your God is giving you Leviticus 1915 says this, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. All of that is within the context. It's not just three verses later that we find in Leviticus the second great commandment, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then if you turn over with me, I know we're in Jude. If you turn over just to to James chapter 2. James really hits on this concept. Partiality. Got strong words for it. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And James points to those examples to show, oftentimes we show partiality for the wrong reasons and in the wrong cases. And he does point to, what's the temptation of those who are rich? What temptation do they face? Do they face the temptation to use what they have to abuse others? Absolutely. And again, that's a a real thing, and we, we can't acknowledge that and say that is true. But we don't, even in those circumstances, we must jar, uh, judge without partiality. We judge according to what is true. We don't, are not biased. And look with me at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James makes it very clear. If we're judging with partiality, we are not loving our neighbor. Right? Do you like it when people judge you with partiality? When they assume motives uh, and accuse you of things? That, that's, how, uh, that's how arguments start in our families, right? We, we presume, we accuse, all of those things. And the reality of what is being put forward as justice is injustice. True justice under the law is everybody is equal under the law. And and here's the the difference. Either we have a government of laws uh, that uh, are the standard of truth or we have a government of men. And those men will decide... Uh, what is true and what is just. And that's going to constantly change. And that's what's being proposed right now uh, and being embraced. And it's moving so fast because what used to be right is now wrong uh, and is now being accused uh, and attacked and in so many ways. And, and the social justice movement is, is it's not just a movement about an isolated portion of society or of life. It is a holistic worldview it is a new religion and it's a it's a a religion that is incompatible with scripture and again it's not immediately apparent but because they don't come broadcasting like we're redefining everything that you thought but they do it in in subtle ways but what they've redefined things to be is completely different from what it has always been we have the same words, but different dictionaries. And, and the, the social justice movement has worked really, really hard to try and build a bridge between themselves and the, the civil rights movement of the 1960s. It worked really hard to do that. They're carrying things on. But, but the civil rights movement in the 1960s, uh, the leaders of that movement... Uh, we're all operating off of a a Christian worldview. They're still operating off of a biblical framework. Uh, they're, they're still calling for true justice, impartial judgment, and this becomes very very clear in probably the most famous line that came out of the social or the civil rights movement of the 1960s, right? Uh, The most famous line from Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. What is it? I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. What is Dr. King? What form of justice is he advocating for? What is he putting forward? True justice. He says, don't be prejudicial towards my kids. He's saying, I want you to judge my kids, but with true judgment, not based upon the color of their skin, but by what are they doing? If they're doing something that ain't right, address it. But, but don't form a pre-judgment based upon merely their own skin. That was what was taking place and had taken place for so long. And he's saying, this needs to stop. We need true justice, but that's been turned on its head now. That's not what is being pursued. There's a discontinuity between the social justice movement and the civil rights movement of the 1960s. What was being proposed in the 1960s was a pursuit of biblical justice, of impartial judgment. And we as a church must strive uh, to reflect God in that. How does God judge? with impartiality no jumping to conclusions everyone is equal before the law is there a special law for you found in the Bible that doesn't apply to me I'm Like no. Uh, the very next verse in, in James chapter 2 verse 10 for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it that's not partiality that's if, if you're guilty you're guilty and, and you address it accordingly. We have to, to judge righteously. We have to judge without partiality. Even if we are being judged unfairly by the world around us. And we need to prepare ourselves for that. If this is the new definition of justice, guess what's coming our way? All of this. So we need to be diligent that we are consistent, that we are modeling true justice that we are teaching true justice to our kids. We have to do that. We we have to also seek to understand. All of this constant redefinition of terms uh, points to us that when we're having these conversations, and I would implore you to have these conversations with friends, neighbors, coworkers, but ask questions. What do you mean by that? So when you say that, help me to understand. Talk with them. Again, because we're listening with the goal of understanding. And then when we rightly understand where they're coming from, we judge it according to God's word. We confess everything that is sinful to be sin. We lament with every injustice and tragedy. But then we also must be faithful in proclaiming the gospel of the God who is impartial, who is willing and able to save anyone and everyone. Acts chapter 10 Verses 34 and 35, after, uh, this is Peter's conversation with Cornelius, who's a Gentile. Uh, this is the, the Gentiles being brought into the church. Peter says this, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. We, we, we serve, we follow, we love an impartial God. And we are called to emulate Him, to be as He is, both as we interact with others and as we boldly proclaim the message of the gospel. Amen?